0: Let's take out our Bibles today. We began the book of Mark last week, and I'd like you to turn to Mark chapter 1 this morning. Mark chapter 1, we're going to be in verse 9 through 15 today. Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 15. And uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand in the air and we'll get one to you so that you can follow along. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and take that one for yourself. I think everyone should have a printed Bible that they can uh, interact with and read on their own. But uh, Mark chapter 1, if you're, if you're new and you don't know who I am, my, my name's Nate Holdridge. I'm the senior pastor of the church, and um, it's my privilege to be able to teach the Bible here. So that's what we're going to do for a few minutes. You guys doing okay? You guys with me? Yeah. You know, sometimes the 11 o'clock service, you guys come in a little groggy, you know, and I'm like, Brenton, you know, I, I think you need to pump it up a little bit for these guys. Just get them going, because, you know, that you can't... You can, I need the energy, all right, at the 11 o'clock service. I need the energy. So you guys ready to bring a little energy today? Okay. I think to help you with that, I'm going to ask you to stand up again so we can read the Bible. Let's read the passage today. Okay. This is Mark's introduction. It started in verse 1. We went through verse 8 last week. It ends in verse 15, so we're doing verse 9 to 15 today Then, verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe In the gospel. Lord, we pray today that you would speak to us from your word and that you would show us who you are, Lord Jesus, and what your kingdom is like. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. I want you to think about with me this morning what it's like when a a new leader, CEO, general, teacher, a new leader is installed in an organization. Everybody under their charge watches their first moves. I mean, we even talk about this nationally in the United States because we make a big deal about a president's first 100 days. The idea is that the way they're presented, the first priorities that they launch out into and the words that they speak at the beginning are so important for setting the tone for what they are going to be about throughout the duration of their leadership. We have a similar thing that is happening today in this passage that we just read. Mark is going to jump into describing Jesus. He's not going to tell us about Jesus' backstory, he's not going to get into Jesus' childhood really. He's not going to focus on the relationship that Jesus had with John the Baptist. He's not going to do any of those things. Like I said to you last week, the Gospels are not biographies of Jesus' life. If they were biographies of Jesus' life, they would be as big as the Bible itself, if not longer. Mark's, or excuse me, John said at the conclusion of his Gospel that the world itself could not contain all the books that could be written about Jesus' life. What the Gospels are are historical theologies that are aiming for a specific point, selected episodes from Jesus' life designed to show us who Jesus is. And these early episodes that Mark chooses, three of them today, what does Jesus' inauguration look like? You know, when he is announced as the new king, the new leader, the one to bring in God's kingdom and plan, what did that look like? And each element, the Spirit pouring down, the heavens breaking open, the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What did those things indicate and mean for Jesus' leadership and kingdom? And then the first thing that he does, he's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. Why was that the first thing that Jesus did? And what does that mean for his kingdom? And what does it mean for us today? And then finally, What does he say? What does he speak? What's the mission statement of this new leader? When Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's a synopsis of his whole message, and what does that mean for us today? So we get a chance to wrestle with the beginnings of Jesus' reign as king, and to think about what that means in our lives uh, today. Now, like I've already mentioned, Mark doesn't take much time to give the backstory to Jesus's life. You know, Mary and Elizabeth were relatives. They gave birth to Jesus and to John. That means Jesus and John the Baptist were relatives. That's a very interesting backstory if you think about it, but Mark's not concerned with it. Mark doesn't talk about what Jesus was doing in Nazareth while he was growing up, doesn't talk about his life as a carpenter or a laborer, doesn't tell us what his teenage years were like, doesn't tell us what his GPA was when he was in high school. None of those things are given to us. Instead, Mark just jumps right into it in verse 9 and says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Luke tells us that Jesus was about 30 years of age at this point. So there is much, again, that the authors are not wanting to bring us into. But what they do want us to see is this incredible breaking through of God in the baptism of Jesus. So let's start out first with Jesus' introduction and looking at at his baptism. And I'll read it to you again in verse 9 and 11. I know we just read it, but it can't hurt to see it again. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now we read this and we know it as the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. But the early church really considered this a vital and important event. And the reason I know that is because when you read the beginning of the book of Acts, after Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father, the early Christians got together and the disciples, they said, we need to find a replacement for Judas who betrayed Jesus and then went off and took his own life. And as they thought about the kind of person that could replace Judas, they said, we have to find someone who was with us from the beginning, from Jesus's baptism all the way through to his death and resurrection. So they considered this a vital and important event. It was a big deal to the early church. And before we look at why it was a big deal, I think we should answer a question that might come up in some of our minds when we see Jesus being baptized, especially if you were here last Sunday. Because last Sunday, we saw John baptizing people. And how did he baptize people? It says in the first section of, Je- of Mark's gospel, that John offered a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So doesn't it strike you as a little bit odd that Jesus himself then went out to be baptized by John? The Bible teaches that Jesus is sinless, was sinless, had nothing to confess, had no sin to be baptized for. And the other gospels tell us that John felt the same way. When Jesus started coming out to him in the water, John, knowing who Jesus was, objected. He said, I should be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus answered, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And John, I think, probably just heard Jesus say that and thought, I have no idea what that means, but I'll baptize you. And after Jesus was baptized, the Spirit came down uh, upon him. And it's left us to ask the question, you know, what did Jesus mean when he said, for thus it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness? Why was that the reason that Jesus should be baptized? Now, some people think that what Jesus was saying was, look, the Bible teaches in places like Isaiah 53 that when the Messiah comes, he will be numbered with the transgressors. He will bear our iniquities upon his shoulders. So some people think that what Jesus was doing there in his baptism was he was beginning the process of taking the sin of the world upon his own shoulders. He's saying, I'm identifying with sinful humanity and doing what sinful humanity has already done and responding to John's imploration that they would confess their sin and turn and walk with God. But I think to really understand why Jesus was baptized, we have to think again about John and his ministry, what it meant in the first place. Remember, people in Israel at that time were waiting for the day of the Lord. They were waiting for a day when God would break in to the world scene and come and help Israel's situation. And specifically, they were waiting for a figure named Elijah the prophet to come and kick off God's plan. And John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He came, as we saw last week, dressed even like Elijah. And he came preaching this message, Matthew 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, John's message wasn't just merely repent. Repent. His message wasn't merely, hey, think about your life and turn and walk with God. No, his message was that kingdom, the kingdom that you've waited for, the promises that God made, the promise that he made to David that a descendant of his would sit on a throne forever. All of those promises are about to come to pass. That kingdom of heaven is at hand and will present itself at any moment, so ready yourself that kingdom. Then Jesus, in the midst of that anticipation, comes along, walks out into the water, is baptized, the heavens split open, the Spirit comes down, the Father speaks. Everyone there would have understood that the kingdom that John said was coming was found and centered right in that person that was out there in the water with him that day. I think that's why Jesus wanted to be baptized. This was going to be the public kickstart of his kingdom and his ministry here on earth. This is God breaking through into human history and beginning his beautiful plan and making it evident to the world around us. But there's a few reasons why we should see this as God breaking out or breaking through here on earth. And the first detail is found there in the opening of heaven. Look at it in verse 10 with me. John, or excuse me, Mark records, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. The other gospel writers who talk about this event, they just say the heavens were opened up, the sky opened up. But Mark uses a more violent word than they do, and he says that the heavens were torn open. Or another way you could translate that word is the word split Open The heavens were split open. Now, you and I, we read that and we just think, man, Mark's such a good writer. He's just throwing out some cool little details, just making us really feel the impact of the event. But for them, as ancient Israelites, when they heard that the heavens were split open, it was another way of saying the gap between man and God has just been dealt with. And God is coming to earth to do something. The heavens are split open so that God can come down and help us. In fact, they used to pray like this. Back in the book of Isaiah, for example, there was a time in Israel's history where they were far from God. Miracles weren't happening, prophets weren't on the scene. They were powerless in the face of their enemies who were coming against them. They were under the judgment of God. And they cried out to God and described their situation. You know, this is where we're at. We're far from you. We're not seeing the things that we used to see in our nation's history. And then they prayed this way. Isaiah 64, verse one. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Have you ever just felt that way personally before God? Like, oh God, here I am in this situation. Here I am just sputtering through life. Here I am doing what I'm doing, but I pray that you would rend the heavens the heavens and come down. I need you to move. I need you to work. I need you to revive me. I need you to help me. Would you rend the heavens and come down? And so when Mark describes the the heavens being split open, it was a way for him to express, God has ripped the heavens apart and has come down in the form of this man that is standing before you being baptized by John the Baptist. And I think the tearing apart of those heavens was meant to forecast the ultimate tearing apart that would occur at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, there was a veil that separated, a thick curtain that separated the people of Israel from their God in the Holy of Holies in Israel's temple. But it says in Mark chapter 15 verse 37 that when Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, with his last breath at his death, the gap between God and man was broken by God through the cross of Jesus Christ. So Mark is telling them and telling us that the ancient prayers of Israel had been answered in Jesus, that God was now breaking out upon them through his son, Jesus Christ. But there's another detail I want you to see that points to God breaking through at Jesus' baptism. And it's simply this. It's the outpouring of God's Spirit. It says in verse 10 that immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Okay, the, the, the way that we're going to understand this is that the Spirit, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry life, his public life, the things that he did, the Spirit came upon him and made him strong to be able to do all the things that he did. Now, this takes a little bit of explaining to modern people because we think about Jesus and we know that the Bible teaches he's the Son of God and God the Son. He's divine. So when we see him walking on water, when we see him feeding the 5,000, when we see him raising the dead, we think, well, that's what God's Son would do if he came to earth. He's just tapping into his divine power, and ability. But listen to the way Paul said it in Philippians chapter 2. He said that when Je- though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to, held, to be held on to, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now hear me on this right now. When Jesus emptied himself, according to Paul, He was not emptying himself of his divinity. That would be impossible for Jesus to ever do. But what many people have understood that Jesus was doing was emptying himself of the privileges of his divinity by becoming one of us. So as he did that, that meant that he needed to rely on the power of the Spirit to do his work here on earth. In other words, we're meant to see Jesus preaching and working miracles and casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit who came upon him at his baptism. And part of the reason this is important is because everybody that was there that day, though they might have had this low grade hope that a prophet would arise or some deliverer would come, they had begun tired of hoping for that. The centuries had ticked by, and they'd seen nobody filled with the Spirit. There were no prophets. God wasn't speaking. Miracles weren't happening. And now the Spirit of God comes down like a dove and rests upon an individual. Though Israel wasn't Spirit-filled, there was one Israelite who was, Jesus. So all of this was to make them say, God's Spirit has come. God has broken through. Now before I move on to another evidence that this is God breaking through here at Jesus' baptism, I should just make this application to our daily lives because if Jesus needed the power of the Spirit for his life in order to do what God wanted him to do, then don't you think that we also need the power of the Holy Spirit to do whatever it is the Lord is asking us to do? This should be considered the, the understatement of the year okay? If Jesus needed the Spirit, then we also so much more so need the Spirit, the power of the Lord to help us uh, in these lives of ours. Remember a few years ago, uh, our family, we, it, was, it was time to get a new minivan. We needed, we needed a, a, a new family vehicle. And I know, I know some guys are a little you know sheepish about driving a minivan they, they don't like it they don't like the way it makes them look or whatever but I'm all about it I love driving a minivan it just, for me I drive around I'm like look what I did you know this is this is what I did I I made a family and uh it's like a badge of honor for me you know to drive a minivan so I was looking around I was trying to find you know a, a good deal we were looking for a used minivan and and I found one up in the bay area and I was doing a little research on it it had low miles it was fairly newer uh, version and all that. And as I was trying to figure out who the original owner owners were, I was excited to discover that it had only been owned by one owner, and the previous owner was a convent of nuns <laughs> that owned this <laughs> minivan. I was like, that's it, I'm taking this minivan. <laughs> and so I like to joke around about our minivan and say it's a it's a blessed vehicle, it's a holy vehicle, you know, and And, you know, that we're safe as long as we're driving it, because after all, a bunch of nuns used to own this vehicle, you know, all that. You know, it's just a joke that I'm making, but you know, the reality is, is that it's like every other car out there. You know, if I put it in neutral and I don't turn on the ignition, I could maybe push it a few feet, but to really get anywhere, it needs the engine, it needs power. And so often for us is believers we're trying to use our own strength our own energy our own flesh to get the job accomplished now the lord's given us minds and bodies that he wants us to use to work hard but we at the end of the day cannot get the job done without the power of god's holy spirit we need his strength yeah i know that i'm very conscious of that every time i share the word I could prepare so hard, I could, I could spend so many hours, I could pray it through, but the reality is, without the Holy Spirit working in the life of the hearer, it will all be for naught. It requires the Spirit of God to see God's work accomplished, and if Jesus needed the Spirit, then we also, much more so, need the Spirit to help us for the ministry He's called us to do here on earth. But there's another detail that I want you to see that points to God breaking through at Jesus' baptism, and it's a very clear one. It's the voice of the Father over the Son. Did you see the way that God spoke in verse 11? The Father said, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well, pleased." What a beautiful moment there. Before Jesus did anything, before he said anything in ministry, before any miracles, the Father looks at him and says, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. Now, you might expect after reading this that all through Jesus's life, this was a common occurrence. You know, he works a miracle and the father gives his commentary on it from heaven. But it's actually very rare that the father speaks. The gospel writers tell us three times the father spoke over Jesus. Once here, at his baptism when he said, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then uh, a year and a half or so later at the Mount of Transfiguration when he took Peter, James, and John to the mountaintop. And in prayer, Moses and Elijah appeared and Peter came up with the idea, let's build permanent structures so that for you and for Moses and Elijah so that we can all stay here on this mountaintop. And the father broke through again and said, This is my son, hear him. And then at the end of his life, when Jesus was about ready to go to the cross, he began to declare afresh that people should follow him, that people should serve him, that people should be devoted to him. And as he said that, he then declared out loud, Father glorify your name and a voice came from heaven john 12:28 and said i have glorified it and i will glorify it again now this is a not this is not a carbon copy of what the father said at the baptism of jesus or at the mount of transfiguration it's a little bit different but i think if you really think about it it stands out as an accelerated version of what he said at the baptism and then at the mount of transfiguration You see, at Jesus' baptism, he said, you're my son. Then, in the presence of Moses and Elijah, he said, listen to my son. You know, Moses and Elijah were considered the the representatives of the law and the prophets. And the father says, listen to my son in the presence of these figureheads of the law and the prophets. And then, after Jesus told people that they should serve him and follow him, the father said, in effect, that's right. I have no correction to offer. I hear my son and I will glorify my name in my son. You see, if a teacher stood up and said, follow me, lay down your life to follow me, pursue me, we'd say that's crazy, there's no human being that deserves that kind of allegiance. But the Father, Father God said of Jesus, that's right. When he says to follow him and to serve him and to worship him, that's exactly what I want human beings to do. So the Father's voice set Jesus apart from everyone else in human history. There's no one like Jesus. He's called beloved by the Father. He's better than Moses and Elijah. He's worthy of that kind of service and allegiance. He's the one who brings God's grace to this world. In fact, listen to this quote from Isaiah 42 and ask yourself if it sounds like this scene. God said, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. You see, the father had said this about his son in times past through the prophet Elijah, and now he says it of his son. Well, he's out there in the water being baptized by John. Okay, before we look at the next scene, I think it would be good to point out The status or the thing the Father said of Jesus, he called him beloved. He called him beloved. In other words, before Jesus did anything in public ministry, he was secure in the Father's love. No miracles, no sermons, none of that, no disciples. And the Father's love was there for him. In fact, the way that Mark writes it speaks of the past tense. This means that the Father's love for the Son was timeless, from eternity past, the Father had given his love to the Son. Okay, this is important on a lot of levels for the way that we understand Jesus, but one great thing that's, imp- or one great level, or one thing we should understand is how it relates to our own position before the Father. You see, when you believe in Jesus, you acquire his beloved status before the Father, you get Jesus' position. Before the Father. And right here in the baptismal waters of the Jordan, we learn of Jesus' position before the Father, loved by the Father. This is how Paul says it in Romans 3 21 to 22. He says, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him, without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. How do we get right with God? How do we get to be pleasing in the sight of God? Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are made right with God. Part of the reason I mentioned this this morning is because in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus says to John, Permit it to be so, mean be baptized, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness, Some people get confused by that statement of Jesus and think that, oh, so that means somebody must be baptized in order to be made righteous in God's sight. They must be baptized in order to be saved. But throughout the New Testament, there are hundreds of passages like the one I just read in Romans chapter three, where faith is highlighted and water baptism isn't even mentioned. Now, water baptism is commanded of believers. If you become a Christian, if you become a believer, you should get water baptized and tell the world that you're new on the inside, that he's changed you and cleaned you from the inside out, and you are now identified publicly with him. But over and over again in the New Testament, faith in Jesus is held out as the exclusive path to salvation. Part of the reason I need to say this as well is because sometimes in the New Testament, every once in a while, there's a verse that talks about faith, and then immediately after it, it talks about baptism. And Orthodox believers understand those verses to mean get saved through faith, then respond to the salvation you have by being baptized. But some people twist them to say, no, what the Bible's teaching is we are saved by faith, then also baptism together. I don't have time to look at all of those verses, but let me just say it like this. If salvation comes through faith plus baptism, the Bible is terrible at communicating that idea. It does a terrible job building a case that someone has to be baptized to be saved. Why can I say that? I can say it this way, because over and over again, it mentions faith without even talking about baptism at all. If baptism is required for salvation, then I would expect every single time that faith is mentioned, baptism would also be mentioned. Otherwise, the New Testament would be an entirely misleading book. No, it's faith alone which grants someone the glorious position of Jesus Christ. Let's see the way Paul said it before we move on to our next section. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, for you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourself, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. So we are just basically talking about faith alone, and for this we we rejoice, amen? Okay, but let's look at our second and third sections uh, much more briefly than we did the baptism of Jesus, and the second section is his mission. Remember I talked about those leaders who come onto the scene, what's the first uh, way that they're introduced to everybody? Now, what's the first thing that they do? And what's the first thing that Jesus does? Well, verse 12 and 13 tells us. It says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, the other Gospels tell us more details about Jesus' baptism. They... Tell us about the direct temptation of the devil, of Satan, what he said to Jesus, how Jesus responded, how he quoted from Deuteronomy 6 and 8 to combat the temptations. But Mark doesn't get into all of that. He just gives us an overview of the events. So that's what we're going to focus on. He's not interested in the dialogue. This is really typical for Mark. He's, in, he's, he's interested in the action. And the action was that Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. But notice in verse 12 how Jesus went out into the wilderness. It says, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. So if the reader is cruising along and going, oh, there's Jesus out in the water. The Spirit came upon him. Man, I bet like after that, it's just happy times all the time because the Spirit of God is on his life. That little bubble is burst right away because the Spirit drives him into the wilderness to be alone to go through this temptation. The Spirit would not produce a pain-free life for Jesus, nor does he produce a pain-free life for all of us. One thing that Mark does detail is that Jesus was out there for 40 days. That's what he says in verse 13. Okay, now the number 40 rings like alarm bells to to Bible readers. You know, you, you, you think of the people of Israel wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. You think of Moses going up to Mount Sinai for 40 days to receive the law of God. You think of uh, when the ark was closed, the rains came for 40 days. And now here, Jesus is tested out in the wilderness, tempted out in the wilderness for these 40 days. The other gospels tell us that Jesus was fasting the whole time, 40 days of fasting. So we can envision him fatigued, emaciated, weak during this time. Mark makes it even more dramatic when in verse 13 he says that the wild animals were out there with Jesus. It's like this dark and lonely season where he's alone, there's no human companionship, he's by himself, the animals are wild around him. Things getting so bad that Mark records in verse 13 that the angels were dispatched to minister to Jesus Mark tells us that they came after he defeated Satan's temptations, that they came and comforted him and built him back up. He was so weak uh, or weakened through that temptation. But I think that what Mark is describing uh, should help us uh, see Jesus' experience in the wilderness as the anti-Garden of Eden. You see, when, when Adam was in the Garden of Eden... Before he sinned, conditions were totally perfect, right? We just saw this this last Tuesday night in Genesis chapter 2. The topography was lush, not wilderness. The food was plentiful. In other words, he wasn't fasting. The animals lived in harmony with Adam at that point, they weren't wild. And Adam was full, physically strong, and healthy. But Jesus' temptation is shown as the opposite of all of that. But the idea is that Adam could not succeed in a place of paradise, whereas Jesus could succeed in the exact opposite conditions. We couldn't trust Adam, but we can trust Jesus, is the point that Mark seems to be making. And and the whole thing is centered around this. Verse 13, he was tempted by Satan. Satan's going to be the big enemy of Jesus all throughout Mark's gospel. He's going to have emissaries that called demons that Jesus deals with. Jesus will be victorious over them. But this is an important development because it shows us what Jesus thought of as the prime enemy that he needed to get after. You know, they were waiting for him to attack the Romans. They were waiting for him to establish an outward kingdom. But what does Jesus do right off the bat? He doesn't deal with any of those external things He deals with the invisible God of this age who had manipulated the course of history and so broken and corrupted humanity. He goes straight after Satan. And after reading of Jesus' temptations at the hand of Satan in the midst of weakness and frailty, you know, we're, we're left kind of realizing, man, Jesus experienced incredible temptation for us, and he never gave in. I know sometimes when we say that, you know, Jesus was tempted. We read in the book of Hebrews that he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Sometimes we wonder if that's really true. It's like we read it in the Bible so we know the official answers. We're supposed to say, yes, it's true. But we kind of wonder in the back of our minds, like, is it really true? You know, I'm not God. Jesus was God. I can sin. I don't think he could have sinned. So Was his temptation really on the same level as the struggles and temptations that I face in my everyday life and experience? But I think that when we really look the temptation in the wilderness in the eye, that we should come to a totally different conclusion. We shouldn't be saying, was Jesus really tempted to the degree that we are? We should instead reverse it and say, have I ever been tempted to the degree that Jesus was tempted? You know, if there's ever anybody who experienced the full crushing weight of temptation, it's Jesus Christ himself. You see, for us, when temptation comes into our lives, there's two outcomes. One outcome is that we give in. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. We give in, and then the other outcome is that God provides a way of escape, and we take it. In the garden, or excuse me, in the wilderness for 40 days, there was no way of escape for Jesus. He had to endure the temptation for 40 days. So he never gave in, but the temptation only grew stronger and stronger, more and more severe. It's like if a kid is playing a brand new video game and they keep dying on level one. You know, they'll say, hey, this is a really hard game. Well, let's say somebody takes the game all the way to the 100th level, the last level. And and of course, you would expect the game is infinitely more difficult than it was on that first introductory level. That person could then say to that child, look, this is how hard this game really is. You've never even gotten this far to discover how difficult this game truly is. That's Jesus with temptation. He's went all the way to the final level of temptation For you and me, and he never failed. His screen never read "game over." You know, he always succeeded in the face of temptation. I think this is the big thing that Jesus wants us to—that Mark wants us to know. He wants us to see Jesus in his first move as attacking Satan and winning in that battle. He's the true champion when no one else could be. You know, we think about heroes. We think about a firefighter. Where do, what do they do? They run to the flames. Or a, or a can't cancer physician he, or a surgeon who runs to the operating room. Jesus identifies the big problem, and he runs into the wilderness to deal with Satan. So as you think about this, I, I want you to think of another 40 before I move on. Another 40 in Scripture. There was a time in Israel's history where a man named Goliath taunted the people of Israel for 40 days. And the Israelite warriors, none of them had the courage to go out and fight against Goliath for they knew that they would lose until David showed up. Little David was emboldened. He took five smooth stones. He received permission from Saul and he went out to meet Goliath face to face. And with his first stone from his sling, It sunk into Goliath's forehead and David won the victory. It was agreed upon representative warfare. That's what it was. David would fight for Israel. Goliath would fight for the Philistines. So what that meant is that when David was victorious, all of the Israelites were victorious as well. This is Jesus. He is our representative warrior. He went out against Satan. He won the victory. This is foreshadowing the future victory he'll win over Satan on the cross. And because he's our representative, if we believe in him, we are victorious as well. So This is a beautiful thing that we're seeing here, that Jesus came to crush, not Goliath, but he came to crush Satan. He went straight out into that wilderness to deal with him for you and for me. Okay, let's look at our last little section together, verse 14 and 15, and see the message of Jesus. This is kind of a synopsis of what he's gonna teach about all through the book of Mark. He says, now, the, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the kingdom is fulfilled, or excuse me, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, this is a little bit of a conclusion to what Mark started last week, in verse 1, he said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and this is kind of it. This is, the begin, this is the end of that beginning that Mark talked about. Jesus coming along saying, the time's fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he started saying this after John was arrested by the Roman authorities. We're going to learn later in Mark's gospel that Mark, or excuse me, John, was condemning some of the things that Herod was doing in his personal life. That enraged Herod, and so he arrested John and eventually beheaded him. And it seems like the idea is, hey, there's conflict between the existing physical government and Jesus and his kingdom. And the second that John is taken away, Jesus replaces him, and he continues to speak out the message of the kingdom being there, the kingdom being at hand. Notice how Jesus says it in verse 15. He said, the time is fulfilled. Now, you and I, we just read that phrase, and it doesn't mean all that much to us. It's like another way of saying, like, you know, I thought now would be the time that I would come, or something like that. But again, think about what they were anticipating. They wanted a forever kingdom. They were waiting, because of many Old Testament prophecies, for this great deliverer to come. And now Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. You know, what were they waiting for? Well, 2 Samuel 7 tells us that they were waiting for a descendant of David to sit on the throne of David without end. Isaiah chapter 11 tells us that they thought that this person would bring in everlasting peace and the knowledge of God to the entire world. Jeremiah 23 caused them to believe that when he came he would banish all the false leaders that had come before him and were on the world in the world at that time. Micah chapter 4 taught them that when he came he would take all the weak and injured people of the whole world and he would bring them together in Jerusalem and rule from Jerusalem over the world. And Zechariah chapter 9 taught them that when he came he would bring peace from ocean to ocean, so much so that they would just get rid of their military because there'd be no need for it any longer. That's the figure that they were waiting for. So it's like a loaded statement when Jesus comes onto the scene and is like, the time is fulfilled. I'm here. It's happening. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now for us, we know what happens in the rest of the book, right? We know what happens in the rest of Mark's gospel. We know that the Israelites will reject him, that Rome will reject him. They'll put him on a cross. He'll die. There's not gonna be peace from sea to sea. There's not gonna be any throwing away of militaries. That stuff isn't going to happen during this coming of Christ. Eventually, he'll go to the cross and he'll be resurrected. But what we'll discover is that all of this was also part of God's plan. After Jesus departed, from this earth and poured out his spirit, they went out into the world and began to tell the world about Jesus, telling the world that if they believed in Jesus, they could come into God's forgiveness and family for sure, but also into his kingdom. But still one day, all those original things that they were waiting for from Jesus, they will come to pass, not just in a spiritual sense, but in reality, Jesus will visibly rule forever and ever. Okay, but that doesn't mean that when Jesus said the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, that what he's saying is one day in the future, you will see the kingdom of God. Now, in a sense, he's saying, yeah, that's true. You will see those things in the future, but I'm here. So to a degree, you can see it right now. And we know that today. Jesus can rule right inside of our hearts, Amen. He can be the king of you. He could be the king of me, like we prayed a little bit earlier this morning. And the longing of our hearts today, of course, is for Jesus' rule to expand into as many human beings as possible. We want to see Jesus famous, his name honored and glorified, appreciated, revered, celebrated. We want him to be worshiped in as many people as possible. For us, that is the expansion of his kingdom. That is an answer to the Matthew six ten prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the announcement today is that people can come in to the kingdom even before it gets its full visible manifestation and glory. That's why Jesus said in verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. This is how you come in, to this kingdom, you repent and believe in the gospel. Now a lot of people think that Jesus is saying two things. First, repent, secondly, believe in the gospel. But we're probably drawing too hard of a line or a distinction between these two things. To Jesus, I think it was one big movement. Like you turn from what you were doing and sin and all of that and you just turn right into his plan, his good news, his kingdom. The king has come. His kingdom is there, and we can turn right on into it. We can stop living life without him. We can turn around and go his way. And part of the reason I say this is because I think we've made the word repent into just a really bummer, sad kind of word in modern Christianity sometimes. We think of the word repent, and we think it means, all right, what you need to do first before you turn and believe the gospel is you have to have a really sad religious experience you know some kind of thing where you just realize how terrible you are you kind of tell yourself that you tell others that you tell god that and it's just like you got to be bummed out about yourself for a little while before you then can turn and believe in him we think of it as a harsh word well let's think of it in a different kind of way it's a, it's a it's a an asking a begging an imploring that someone would turn and get in the right and healthy direction for their lives that's a healthy beautiful loving request that someone makes if you're a parent I'm sure you've done this before I remember when my kids were little we would go on walks like you know out in the forest or you know out in nature or uh, on the rec trail or on the street or whatever and it's like as a parent you are saving your children's lives hundreds of times just on an average little walk down the street in ten minutes you know it's like You could have got killed by a car. You could have got killed by that bike rider. You could have fallen uh, over that cliff. You could have just been infected with so much poison oak, you would have died from it. Like all these things are happening and I have saved your life so many times in the last 10 minutes. Now when you do that, are you like, repeat, turn around? You know, is that the way it is? No, it's just, I love you, you're going the wrong way. This is the right way. This is the safe way. This is how I want you to travel. That's what it means for us to repent and believe in the gospel. To turn around, to say, the direction I'm going is leading to death. I want to be part of Jesus' team and part of his kingdom. I want to change my direction and follow after him. Yeah. All right, so in conclusion, just thinking about this, and you know, I want you to be thinking Not about repenting and believing in the gospel as a box that you check at some point in your life. Okay, I realize that's a temptation in modern Christianity is to think about it that way. Like verse 15, have I ever done that? Check it off. My prayer is that every time we open up the book of Mark together, you'd be asking yourself, what new facet of Jesus' life and kingdom am I gonna discover today? And am I willing to turn If I'm living in a way that's different than that, am I willing to turn and believe in him and follow after this new path, this kingdom that he has for me? So let's not think of it as just something to check off, but something that we want to live out every day of our lives. All right, so for all of these things, you know, we have Jesus. Jesus. You know, I see him baptized in the Jordan River and it makes me think of the first time the Jordan River really showed up in Scripture when God opened the Jordan to bring them into the promised land. And I think of Jesus as the new Jordan River, you know, the one who brings us into his promised land for us. And when I think of him going out into the wilderness and being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, I think of David going out after 40 days of Goliath's taunts and defeating him. And I think of Jesus as the new David. David a great champion for us. And when I think of him saying the kingdom of God is at hand, I think of all those ancient kings in Israel's history, many of whom started out well, but then eventually fell into disrepair when God's spirit had to remove himself from their nation for long periods of time. And yet in the midst of all of that, they still were waiting for this king who would come who would bring in everlasting righteousness. And I think of Jesus. He's our new king. He's the new Jordan. He's the new David. He's the new king. And he's shown us what he's about here in this passage. So let's just wrap it up with some applications. I don't have applicational things for you to do, but three questions for you to ask today as a result of this passage. Number one, here's the first question. Will I allow Jesus to break out in my life? Will I allow Jesus to break out in my life? You know, the heavens were split open. The Spirit came down. Jesus is here. So this question is another way of asking the question, will you let Jesus mess with you? Will you let him have access? You know, will you let him do stuff in your life that's even uncomfortable? And then the second question is, will I always turn to Jesus to deliver me from temptation? You know, if he's the one who defeated Satan, He's the one who overcame that grave temptation. Here's the question, are you walking with him? Are you loving him? Are you praying to him? Are you spending time with him? Because he's the one who can transform you. He's the one who can give you victory over the temptation that is common to all of us as people. And then number three, what kingdom am I most aligned with today? What kingdom am I most aligned with today? And the reason I'm putting that word today in the question is, is because I don't think it's a once and for all question to ask. What kingdom am I aligned with? Then I answer it, oh, Jesus and his kingdom. And then 10 years later, someone says, what kingdom are you aligned with? And you say, what, well, 10 years ago, I already decided. You know, it's, No, today. What kingdom today is your life, for all intents and purposes, most aligned with? Let it be the kingdom